When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dad, how are you? Uh, I'm fine, although, as you can see, I've got a very red eye. You do? Because I was in the shower at the Lido. The Lido, Parliament Hill. Parliament Hill, Lido. and it was really, really in October, cold. October, we the must sh- add. And the, sh- the showers were hot. And I couldn't feel my hands when I was washing my hair. And I poked my eye and it really, really, really hurts. You know what's mad, right, is if you think, imagine if I did that with these oh, nails, what would I, the damage really, I would have done. Really, really bad, yeah. Funny you talk about eyes because actually I've got to go to I know, you've got to go to competition, today, yeah. I've, I, my eyesight has gotten terribly mm. bad. And I'm wearing new glasses today. You're wearing new glasses and I Incredible. was just in LA and I had this terrible first world problem where I couldn't see the Hollywood sign. Oh my God. That's when I realised I needed to get glasses because I couldn't see the Hollywood sign. The day you were in Hollywood, I was in Marseille where they put up a Marseille sign based on the Hollywood sign. Yeah, I know. Wow. Could you see it? I saw it, yeah, my eyes Yeah, with fine. your glasses. Yeah. Okay, so I'm very excited for the person we've got on the podcast today. How did we get her, Grace? We got her because of uh, your sort of vaguely relevant contacts that you got from the days when you were in politics oh, and, and people uh, listened to you okay. and your Twitter account. Okay. Um, but she is kind of a feminist legend. She was mm-hmm. the first ever female Deputy Prime Minister of Australia and then the first ever female Prime Minister and the only female Prime Minister. Mm. And and also, she's the first Prime Minister that we've had on the podcast. Yeah. She's the first podcast Prime Minister. Yeah. And she's got a podcast of her own. And and it's called A Podcast podcast of One's Own. own. Um, So the person that we've got on the podcast today is... Julia Julia Gillard. Gillard. I'm very excited to have you here today, Julia. It's very nice to meet you on this rainy day in London. Um, I'm going to start with talking about your childhood, okay? Because you were born in Barry, Wales, which is where Gavin and Stacey are set. Do you know that? Yeah. I do. <laughs> when I was researching back, I was like, oh my God, I knew Barry because of Gavin and Stacey. Um, but you moved to Australia when you were a child because you got sick and it was advised that a warmer climate would be better. Do you identify completely as an Australian person now or do you still identify as Welsh as well as Australian? Well, I've just been in Wales and stood in front of the house that I was born in, 84 Queen Street, Barry, and we have to be a little bit careful about the reason we migrated to Australia. The Welsh Tourism Board really hates it when I say publicly uh, that I migrated because of the climate. So cut, 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 that isn't the reason. Um, I I did have bronchial pneumonia as a baby and so my parents were in search of a bit more warmth, uh, but they also thought it would offer a better economic opportunity. But the answer to your question is I am one 
100% Australian, as you can tell from this voice. <laughs> uh, but part of my heart is in Wales because I grew up on mum and dad's stories of their childhood and I've had the opportunity to travel there a bit and we've still got relatives and all the rest of it. So, so it's did, did heartwarming both... to be there. And so when you left here, though, did you have a, a Welsh accent? Well, I must. How have, old were you? I was four, right. so I would have been talking. I'm sure I was talking a lot. Uh, I was four, and my sister was seven, uh, so I don't have any original memories from Wales. My sister's got sort of little kitty memories. Uh, she remembers being on the boat. I don't particularly remember that. My earliest memories of are of being in the migrant hostel that we spent a little bit of time before yeah. uh, mum and dad, you know, got us into a rental flat and then um, put a deposit on a house because one of the conditions of migration was you had enough money to put a deposit on But that was such house. a huge thing for the family, presumably. Your dad, your dad was a psychiatric nurse. He studied that in Australia, actually. Oh, I um, see. He left school at 14, even though he'd done really well in the 11 plus and got offered a scholarship uh, because his family in a coal mining village in South Wales just couldn't afford not to have him working. Uh, he did some night school and all the rest of it, ended up being a police officer in Barrie. Uh, my mother at that stage was a police officer too, though these were in the days that women police officers were really doing the administrative yeah. work in the station. So they got married. We went to Australia. We migrated. Uh, and Dad had to find work. He did security guard work and various other things. And then he literally applied when a newspaper advertisement said, do you want to be a prison guard or a psychiatric <laughs> nurse? Uh, and he said, oh, I'd quite like to be a psychiatric nurse, please. Uh, and he did the course of study, and right. that's what he did for the rest of his life. What were you like as a child? Oh, I was pretty um, shy, studious, reading, not very sporty kind of kid, maybe a bit boring as a result. Were there signs that you wanted to be a leader, a politician? Do you think your parents knew that you had that kind of gut feeling in you? (laughs) Uh, No, I uh, think, you know, Dad in particular, both Mum and Dad were interested in politics and current affairs, but Dad in particular had that Welsh culture, you know, he believed in trade unionism, he believed in the Labour Party, he followed the career of Neil Kinnock very closely, Uh, he had a very decided view on Margaret Thatcher and the miners' strike and all of that. Uh, So I grew up in a household where, you know, all of these things were constantly talked about. So they wouldn't have been in any doubt about my values, but I think they were surprised to see a shy girl end up being a high school debater and then going into university and becoming a student politician. But what what, what changed? Well, the high school debating kind of helped with confidence a bit and we were in an all-girls team, even though we were from a co-ed school, only the girls went out for debating and we used to flog boys' teams from other schools, so we liked that. (laughs) Uh, But what really changed is in my second year of university, there was a Conservative government that implemented quite big cutbacks to uh, education funding and coming from my background where, you know, Dad hadn't finished secondary school, Mum hadn't finished secondary school, we'd been taught to really value education I thought that was wrong and I got active around it and that gave me a taste for advocacy and public policy and making a difference. So when did you when did you first think that there was a kind of motor inside you that would drive you actually into a political career? 
Well, from that campaigning, I ended up more and more and more involved in uh, the student union. And then I ended up education vice president and then president of what was then called the Australian Union of Students. And we had a relationship wow. with the National Union of Students here in the UK. And by the time I came out of that, I was starting to think to myself, you know, could this be me? Could I you know, get an opportunity in Parliament? Was the shyness still in there? Oh, look, I'm not... Um, Look, I stand on public stages uh, 100% of the time. I think I gave as good as I got in Parliament. I can do all of that. I'm not that natural crowd politician extrovert. You would have met many of them in your career, the people who sort of feed off the energy and always want to be with people. Um, I'm not that. I'm someone who recharges by retreating a bit. Mm. Uh, but that sort of sense of shyness, I couldn't speak in front of a group, is well and truly gone. Yeah. Yeah. And were you always, say, OK, so from when you were a child up through school and then at university when you were, like, the head of the Australian union of students that's huge surely were you always a feminist in this time did you always sort of know that you were all you were taking on two roles as a sort of leader in what you were doing but also as a woman and sort of having to stand for issues to do with women yeah absolutely I mean I grew up because there's only my sister and I you know we didn't grow up in a family with a son so it wasn't like in the family home we experienced gender stereotyping and because our mum and dad were ambitious for us, we were always taught, you know, study hard, you can go on to university, you can be what you want to be, you should aim for a career. And, you know, I'm not young, so, uh, you know, I was in school in the 1960s and 1970s, so a lot of girls in those days would have been taught the reverse, you know, don't worry about studying too much because you'll only work for a little bit before you get married and then your life will be in the marital home being a, a wife and a mother. Uh, so I really wasn't that conscious of the whole gender stereotyping sexism um, until I got to university and then my eyes were, were open to the sort of many theories of feminism which were going round at the time and I tried to think it all through and get it right. And certainly in the student union there was a women's department, a women's officer, and we were very conscious um, of feminism, sexism, fighting discrimination. So on a scale of one to ten, how big a feminist are you? Oh, uh, I would say I aspire to be a ten out of ten, uh, but uh, I have many imperfections, so some days I fall below what I would aspire for myself. Some days I'm as capable as the next person of doing some unconscious bias stereotyping, and then I have to pull myself up and go, oh, sort that out. Give me an example. Oh, look, I, all, I think all of us can um, fall for uh, the stereotyping that women leaders aren't very likeable, that we look at a woman who's sort of, you know, pushing a, a group to do a particular thing and we can get a bit kind of, you know, set with, the, set with the jaw thinking, oh, she's not very nice, and then I have to shake myself up and go, am I only seeing that because of gender? Uh, so things like that happen. Okay. And interestingly, because I was listening, I love your podcast, by the way, you're a fellow podcaster. Thank you. I love you. the name of your podcast as well, a podcast, a podcast of, of one's own. own. It's very clever. <laughs> um, we you sound like the Queen, though. Uh, we do. That deliberate? No, it's the Virginia Wall. <laughs> I yeah. know. Yeah, we recorded in the Virginia Wolf building, so oh. a room of one's oh, own. Okay. I love okay. it. I love a room it. of one's own. But I was listening to the episode with Helena Morrissey and the, you were talking about her having a stay-at-home husband and how that's another unconscious bias that we also have when we meet men who are stay-at-home 
husband, there are sort of stereotypes that come there. So it affects people on both sides. Oh. You know? she's, got nine, thought, she's got nine she's kids. She's got nine kids. She does. Yeah. Have, she does have nine <laughs> kids. Uh, and her husband. I gasped. When yeah. said, when that, <laughs> uh, and her husband, after a few of them, uh, decided that in their relationship he would be the stay at home of. You know, parent and with nine kids, I guess you get to a stage where the older ones can help with the younger ones. We actually, for International Women's Day at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, which I'm working at King's College London, uh, further developing, we're building it up, we want to be an empire. Uh, but we did uh, some research uh, in collaboration with Ipsos Mori for International Women's Day, and it was a global research set, a polling uh, research set about what people thought about gender issues. And one of the questions we put was, do you think that a man who who cares for children, who stays home to care for children, is less of a man. And happily, overwhelmingly, around the world, people said no, they didn't think that. So we're starting to break through those stereotypes, but you're (laughs) right to point out gender stereotyping puts cages around men and women about what is appropriate Mm. behaviour. I saw an interview your mum did way back where she said that you decided... As, as a, at a very young age that you weren't you were never going to have kids is that right yeah i was never i was never the can i hold the baby kind of um you know teenage girl uh so whatever that sort of <laughs> impulse is that clearly comes a, 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 you know to the fore for uh, many young women that they absolutely absolutely want to have their own child or children i never felt that drive strongly you know if life and circumstances had worked out differently I wouldn't have put a you know I don't think I was ever at the stage that I put a black line through it uh, but I didn't feel it as a driving force and you know the way life worked out I don't regret it as a decision. But do you think it wouldn't have been possible to pursue the political career that you have if you had had kids? I think it would have been uh, possible or it's just becoming possible uh, I'd, you know, I was in politics with uh, leading female politicians who had their families, uh, people like Tanya Plibersek, who was deputy Labor leader uh, up until uh, the conclusion of the last election, and if we'd been elected, would have been deputy prime minister. I mean, she's had her entire family while she's been in politics. So not impossible, but the pressures are certainly mm. greater. And it is interesting <coughs> that you... Theresa May, Angela Merkel, Nicola Sturgeon, none of you have children. You've all been leading, you know, huge countries in, in recent years. It, it, it is, you've kind of already asked the question there, but it is interesting and it does sort of suggest that it is much harder for women to do both because men, you know, are often leaders and they have children but they just have their partners taking care of that back home you know and it's coming back to that thing of it's not seen as an ideal like situation for a man to be a stay-at-home father as much as it is for a woman so I wonder if that's also wise because it's less likely for men to be like it's about your career and and I'm gonna you know care for the kids while you go out and be this amazing successful politician I haven't got a question here I'm just stating that in 
in many areas of gender equality, things change very, very slowly. And the World Economic Forum is always giving us some very depressing statistics like uh, it's going to be uh, 107 years before we close the gap in political empowerment and 202 years before we close the gap in economic empowerment. So there's lots of things we need to rev up and change more quickly. But I do think that on this question, maybe things are changing relatively quickly. I mean, I am older, clearly, than Jacinda Ardern, but I almost feel like um, I'm the model that's on its way out and she's the model that's on its way in, and that's fantastic, that Mm. it is possible for a woman to be at the top of politics and to also have a child Mm. and to have a, a father who's, you know, acting as the principal carer and everybody goes, tick, 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 that's good. When uh, last time I spoke to you, we were both in Melbourne, and I love Australia, um, but I've never been able to persuade my partner Fiona, Grace's mum, to go. Partly because it's so far, but also she's kind of absorbed this idea that Australia is actually quite a racist, sexist country, which is kind of still out there. Now I don't, I, I see the racism in terms of indigenous population and all the struggles with that, but I don't get that sense of Australia. But What's your sense of how racist and sexist some Australians can be? I don't think uh, my nation is uh, different to the standards of the world and the whole world has to get better. I mean, on my experience of, you know, sexism in politics, uh, people often ask me, oh, you know, isn't that really about Australia and it being a macho society and all the rest of it? And I have to remind them that many of the insults hurled at me weren't original. They were recycled insults from the days that Hillary Clinton was seeking the presidential nomination mm. against President Obama. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't think you can then look and say, oh, this is something about Australia. Mm. This is something about uh, gender and racism around the world that we all need to address. So you don't think Australia's, even though it's got a bit of an image on the the kind of macho front. You don't think that's any different, say, to here or to the States or any other yeah, advanced look, country? Uh, it's a long time since Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> and even uh, uh, even when that was the image of Australia on the world stage because of the popularity of the movie, back home we were already well beyond that. That wasn't our image of ourselves. Um, so I do think that there's probably some potential dislocation between people's views and what the nation is actually like. Mm. I want to ask about the speech that you made sure. uh, when you were in Parliament. To, you made a lot of speeches, Grace. I know, the yeah. very famous speech, which we were just talking about you and Leon, and this guy overheard and came up to us and said, you've got to talk to her about the speech. And I was like, no, we aren't. No, he even said... He, that we, he, he, just said, he said, you must listen to this podcast about it. It's amazing. What was it something called? revisionist history. Yeah, revisionist history about the speech. And we right. were like, we are talk, going to talk about the speech. But it's a speech which you made to the leader of the opposition, Tony Abbott, where you sort of highlighted all of the different ways that he'd been misogynistic and particularly to you right and I watched it and I was so absorbed by it and I was also so inspired because when I was watching it I thought what you do and what you really did in that is master the balance of being angry while not getting sort of hysterical quotation marks (laughs) I got quotation marks because did you know we we know my dad probably doesn't know as much because he's not a woman but that sometimes hysteria in women is sort of weaponized against us especially in sort of like worlds like politics did you because you've clearly mastered that but did you always have that kind of calmness about you where you're making a point which has a lot of 
like weight to it but you're calm or did you have to decide at one point I can't be a hysterical woman because of the way that it will be used against me I think uh, as just as a result of inherent personality, I'm a pretty calm person. I'm not um, I'm not someone who's uh, quick to anger. I'm not someone who's kind of wildly up or wildly down. Uh, I'm not one of those politicians that you know throws things at staff members' heads uh, across. Who are we, t- who are we thinking <laughs> about? Yeah. Politicians or spin doctors? Um. <laughs> uh, across across my whole life, I've never seen anybody work uh, harder or smarter because someone was yelling at them. So I'm. I'm I'm not that kind of person. Uh, and I think that shows in the speech. But really the the emotion I was feeling on the day wasn't het up, you know, anger. It was really a cool sense of after everything that I've had to put up with on a gender front as the first woman to uh, be Australia's Prime Minister. Now apparently I'm going to be lectured about sexism by mm. the Leader of the Opposition. So it was a, a cool anger at the frustration and unfairness of that. And the hypocrisy. Yeah, the hypocrisy. So I never felt um, I, you know, and to give you a sense of how cool the anger was uh, when I finished the speech I sat down Uh, And, um, you know, then because it was a debate, the opposition was going to field another speaker. And so I swung my chair round to my Deputy Prime Minister, Wayne Swan, and said to him, oh, God, I'm going to have to sit here and listen to them speak now. I'm going to get a correspondence basket run in so I've got something to do. And... (laughs) And he looked at me really, really oddly. And Wayne is also someone who's sort of on a fairly emotional, you know, even keel, looked at me really, really oddly and said, you can't give the sort of I accuse kind of speech and then settle down and do your correspondence. (laughs) And I sort of swung my chair back and I thought, oh, that's kind of odd. But when you were giving that speech, (laughs) did you think about kind of the impact it would have around the world? No. No. No, not, not in... My contemplation at all. I mean, you, I, you didn't. You, you didn't have a sense. This is a different sort of speech, and this might just sort of ping through the world consciousness. No, not yeah. n- nothing. Um, I knew that it had landed with force in the parliament because you know you're actually quite close to the opposition. You can yeah. see how they're reacting. You can see how they're dropping their heads. So I knew it had landed with force in the. Although parliament. Abbott was very, very. He. Calm. I mean, he, he. No, but he wasn't calm. I just think he looked really wimpish actually interesting yeah i mean they all went from animated yelling interjecting to, to you know calm. incredibly interested in their phones to <laughs> it was really yeah. interesting watching, yeah. watching him he was sort of he didn't really know how to behave but he wasn't getting angry because he knew that what you were saying was all fact but he uh, was taken aback wasn't he oh i think he was i mean you have to podcast with him one day that'd be a turn up for the books <laughs> get um, you two together <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about that. Uh, I yeah, I think he expected as a parliamentary tactic for it to come off better than it had. Yeah. I doubt whether in that moment he thought about it going around the world either. Yeah. He has, when <clears throat> asked since, said that he continues to think that in terms of him and me, uh, that it was an unfair speech but that he can kind of see why it has travelled. He also, I read, was one of the people who was a kind of supporter of you getting the the top Australian honour. Yes, he did write a, a letter. Uh, so There's no hard feelings. Oh, look, I mean, you can't afford to 
uh, get all, you know, you can't afford to carry all of this with you. So uh, the first time I saw Tony Abbott after I left politics, I was sort of living my life like a fugitive because, you know, Kevin uh, had come back into the Prime Ministership, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd, and there was an election campaign on and I didn't want to be a distraction mm. to the campaign in any way, shape or form. So I was trying to make sure TV cameras, reporters didn't see me anywhere. But I did sneak up to Canberra to do a farewell round with some of the senior public servants. And I was in a flight lounge waiting to get that flight. Uh, and, you know, I'm quietly sitting there by myself. It was very early in the morning having a coffee. And a quite agitated woman from the airline in the lounge came up to me and said, oh, uh, really, I probably shouldn't be telling you this and there are privacy issues and rah, 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 but Tony Abbott's about to join the lounge. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then Tony walks in and you can literally see everybody in this lounge just stop, you know, <laughs> coffee mid to their lips, little bit of toast, you know. Oh my God, half, I bet they were like, this is my lucky day. Yeah, <laughs> half bitten. Uh, and if it had been a school ground, I think some of them would have been shouting, fight, <laughs> fight, fight. fight. <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, you can't have this go on. And Tony hadn't seen me. I'd seen him. So I walked up and said, um, you know. Uh, G'day, mate. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> how, are, how are you, Tony? And he was, oh, you know, nice to see you, Julia, and hope you going okay and I said well I'm not going to wish you good luck because obviously I want our side to win but you know personally I know campaigning's a very uh, tough thing and you know at that level as a human being um, I hope as you're coming through okay and it was fine it was fine but that's people expect the kind of opposition and government to go at each other but the other thing about your politics I mean you have you've had the Labour Party politics is rough Oh, yeah, I think our politics is, um, look, in question time, so us versus the other side of politics, we've got a very robust version. I mean, we do, I mean, obviously, you know, the Westminster system, we're in the home of the Westminster system. (laughs) Um, But we have British politicians come and sit in the gallery and watch our question time and then go, what on earth was that? Because it's so hard line. I think, too, the sort of meta story of Australian politics over a long arc has been about leadership, you Mm. know, Hawke versus Keating in a Labor government, Howard versus Costello in a Conservative government. So we've, we've always had this meta story around leadership. What changed in recent times was how quickly the cycle went round, and now both political parties have done some things to try and, you know, correct for that and slow that down. Do you think the three-year term is a... Is a problem. Oh, yes, certainly. Uh, and can the, that not be changed? Uh, it could be changed. It's possible to change it, but it's got implications for the Senate. Uh, and I think everybody's not quite sure. Um, many of our state governments have moved to four-year terms, so that would be logical. But it does mean, because we only elect half a Senate at a mm. time, that senators would be getting eight-year terms, which probably seems a bit above the odds. Uh, But if you put the whole Senate to election every time, it brings the quota down. You get more minor parties and all Mm. the rest of it. So people are still wrestling with that Mm. conundrum. Can I ask a very logistical question? When you're a politician in Australia, isn't there, like, so much travelling? Oh, yeah. Like, because if your constituency is, like, on the other side and then you've got to get back to Parliament, is is it mad? Oh, it's it's a very big country, and uh, people 
underestimate that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I have conversations here, uh, because that's why I always joke there's only 25 million of us, we all know each other, because people will literally say to me, oh, I met this fantastic woman, you know, who's lives in... Darwin and, you know, you must know her. And you're like, well, I've got an inner plane to go to Darwin. That would be, you know, between four, five hours flying time from where I live. Uh, so, no, I don't. As it happens, I don't know her. Uh, but I met one of your colleagues last time I was there. He told me that his constituency was roughly the size of Portugal. Yeah. Wow. And he had a helicopter. Because yeah, the only way to get around. We have huge, um, you know, constituencies uh, in outback Australia, and so people do get special provision for using light aircraft, using helicopters, because there's no other way to yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. What um, the the going back to the toughness of your politics, though. So, the the killing season, which I watched the sort of series about you and Kevin and that period of the Australian Labor Party and the Australian government. I mean, it was brutal. Do you want to explain a bit more? Well, it's just, you know, so Julia. Uh, how can I put this in shorthand? So you kind of, you got rid of Kevin and you took over and then Kevin was never really happy about that even though you made him foreign minister and eventually he got rid of you again. Is that fair? In in shorthand. (laughs) My my dad says that he was with you on that day. I was, I was, do you remember that? I I came out to see you in Canberra on the day and you knew it was coming but you didn't know it was coming quite as soon and by the time I got to the airport Rudd had made his move right was I still nice to you you were incredibly nice <laughs> I you were amazingly calm and amazingly together I think you did know it was coming though uh, yeah, and I mean, that, that was... final sitting week uh, that I was Prime Minister you could um, it was like um, you know when you have a tropical storm and you can feel the, the build up and you know that the lightning and thunder and crashing rain is about to come down mm. yeah, there was electricity in the air Yeah, and what I found extraordinary about the killing season the TV series was just that it seemed that the, the camera's everywhere You'll be, you guys just you've got cameras everywhere, there's no privacy they're supposed you're to be you're wandering up and down corridors and everything was filmed and then you yeah. all talked about it and uh, I've never watched The Killing Season. Uh, oh, it's a gripping watch, Julia, I've got to tell <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't watch it because I thought, frankly, um, the framing of it uh, missed the ability to tell a deeper story about Australian politics, which is, you know, people can analyse me versus Kevin until the end of time and people will have their own views and that's fine. Uh, but the fact that... You know, Tony Abbott, who was then elected as the Conservative Prime Minister, was also deposed by his own side, Mm. was telling you that the deeper story was something about Australian politics in general rather than a personality story. And what is that story? What is it saying then? Well, I I still think, I do think this leadership being the meta-narrative and the speed of the cycle is part of the explanation. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, the whole framing of the killing season just missed the opportunity to tell that story and uh, that frustrated me, so I didn't bother to watch it. But on on cameras everywhere, there are actually protocols about where the cameras are supposed to be and aren't supposed to be. Uh, but in a time of great intensity like that, all known... You don't even notice. Yeah, well, and all known rules break down, so mm. they're everywhere. And because many of our corridors are... Uh, big glassed-in corridors mm. if they're in courtyards they're and just... stuff they can film in. And what's your relationship uh, with Kevin now? 
Well, we were at the uh, Labor Party campaign launch together for the uh, recent May election. Uh, so very happy to come together to support you know, Labor. Uh, unfortunately, of course, against expectations, um, we didn't. We didn't win. We didn't mm. win that election. So we went to a campaign launch. I think. Well, not just me and Kevin. Everybody at that mm. campaign launch uh, had a happy sense that we were moving towards a victory, but mm. it was not to be. He what, always. Sorry, Chris. What do you think about the current state of our Labor Party? <sighs> Look, I I come and I go from the UK. And the politics is so fraught here now with Brexit that at one level it just amazes me that anybody from any political party is living through it just as a human being. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, the, this sort of stressful Groundhog Day because whilst... Um, you know, something happens on Brexit every day. Actually, the underlying stuff is still the same. So they must wake up every morning going, oh, I've got to do it again. Oh, I've got to do it again. Um, so at that level, I sort of hope everybody goes about their business as best as they can. On a political analysis, I mean, British Labor, any anyone doing the analysis would say is in its contemporary manifestation, well to the left of Australian Labor. Our you know, political tendencies have diverged on that. We don't have an equivalent of momentum or anything like that. Is yours sort of more like New Labor? Well, I, I think yes, yes it is. Um, and there's a couple of sort of structural reasons that make us different from you. We have compulsory voting, so you have to be registered to vote, you have to go and vote. Now, you can put in a blank ballot paper, no one's holding your hand and making sure that you vote, but overwhelmingly that means Australians are registered and they vote, so that converges mm. or tends to converge our politics somewhere around the centre ground, you know. Um, Do you feel like both of our main parties have been captured by the extremes? Well, I, I think there's... I mean, Do here, you mean both our parties here yeah. or yeah. both Labor's? No, Labor, sorry, yeah, Labor our and Labor Tory, and yeah. Yeah. I think in voluntary voting systems, and so this is true here, it's true in the US, true in many other places, in voluntary voting systems with the way media is today, with the you know sort of tribalisation of how people get their political messages, the seduction of playing to the highly motivated, uh, further from the centre players to get them out, get them motivated, get them mm. campaigning and forget about the quiet centre. Mm. Uh, there is a structural reason in voluntary voting systems that political parties do that. Mm. Um, in our system, you know, at the end of the day, average people walking down the street um, have to come and vote. So that converges you a bit yeah. around the centre. Uh, the other thing is we have a preferential system. So you can have viable smaller parties. Mm. For example, we've got a viable Greens party, one person in the House of Representatives, a number of senators. And you, you can vote one for them and two for Labor or whatever you want to do. Uh, so structurally, I think that means that a lot of people who maybe in British Labor and are interested in momentum and interested in Jeremy Corbyn in Australia would be possibly more likely to join the Greens. Mm. But if Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Australian Labor Party and, I mean, you guys would be agitating by now, I suspect. You'd be having one of your famous spills. Yeah, uh, it's... But also, surely, because of the compulsory voting, he'd do really badly if all of those people in the centre were going to vote, like, had to vote, they definitely wouldn't vote for him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard to pick it up and put it down. Yeah. I mean, we, 
we didn't have a recession during the global financial crisis. We haven't had uh, the politics of austerity. So many of mm. the uh, things that uh, British Labor is appealing to and that Jeremy Corbyn personally appealed to in the 2017 campaign here in the UK wouldn't resonate in Australia mm. because mm. of that. And we don't have the student... Uh, fees issue, cooking at the same temperature as you've got it here. We've got a very well-regarded student loan scheme, which has kind of settled politics now. Mm. So it's it's almost impossible to do it. But if you were just... I know political spectrums mean less now than they used to because the real flashpoint divide here now isn't left and right, it's remain or leave. Mm. But if you were going to get out your traditional political spectrum, you would put Corbyn Labor much further to the left than the Australian Labor Party. Um, and I think, you know, the Johnson-led Conservatives, because it's so much about Brexit, they're almost defying, in some ways, a traditional positioning on the mm. left-right spectrum. What uh, What do you make of what Brexit's doing to our great country? <laughs> uh, well, once again, I'm very careful about coming from the outside and saying, oh, you should do this and you should do that, because I don't live here, I don't vote here. Um, I... Uh, worry uh, from a whole series of perspectives about what all of this ultimately means from the for the UK economically. I also worry about the opportunity cost because you've there's only so much political time and mm. attention and talent in a nation, and if all of it is taken by resolving this issue, uh, there means that there are whole lots of things that people would really like to see addressed you know, housing, crime, education, health, what are we going to do about the future of work, how do we achieve better gender equality, you know, all of these, you know, what do we do to combat racism? I mean, all of these things that ought to be getting lots of attention, but Mm. the attention is elsewhere. Yeah. And if you're the Australian, if you were the Australian Prime Minister now, ScoMo, (laughs) where does Britain figure in the kind of, you know, global priority list? Oh, I mean, the UK um, is an important diplomatic relationship to us, of course. You know, we. But which are the most important now? China? Oh, no, look, it, it, look, in some ways it depends what prism you're using for it. I mean, we, um, you know, we've got the historic relationship with the UK. We share the same Queen, a uh, huge, um, you know, intelligence sharing, national security arrangements. We're all in what's referred to as the Five Eyes um, system of uh, sharing intelligence and, and security matters. Um, in terms of uh, contemporary trading, um, obviously, our relationships in our region of the world, including the China relationship, mm. loom huge. Mm. Mm. Should we sport? talk about sport? So, so <laughs> do you. You are <laughs> Onto the more like, so footy is different. Well, do the on a scale of one to ten first. On a scale of one to ten, yeah, but that's what I was going to say because okay. football, I'm presuming, is not going to be the right sport to talk about here. Is football... Yes, uh, OK, your... we, we're going to have to... Uh, we do share a language in common, but not all aspects yeah. of it. Uh, so in Australia, we have our own football, Australian rules football, which yes. we love. Um, we and your team's the Western Bulldogs? My team's the Western Bulldogs. I was number one ticket holder for a period of time. Wow. Which was very exciting. What does that mean? Uh, they get someone to be the sort of... It's a the equivalent of being a patron or something oh, like wow. that. Uh, so you're um, associated with the, the club and what they do, but you're not on the board of directors or anything. Um, you know, there's no fiduciary or organisational role, but you're the, the patron, the number one ticket holder. So we, we've got our own footy. 
Um, the code historically in Australia that it was, you know, the next one, um, and in some states was the predominant one, rugby uh, was league, rugby league. Um, then we also have people who play what we would call soccer, you would call football. Uh, we have people who play union, um, then, you know, the crickets. And is the so le- league the- union, is it, is it the same sort of class divide as a little bit here? That league is very working class and rugby union may be uh, yeah, tra- Traditionally, league is very um, work- working class and has built up big clubs in communities, mm. you know, that, that offer, um, you know, I mean, obviously they're um, entertainment venues. People go for a, a drink and uh, to have a meal and to play poker machines and stuff like that. But they often also give services to the community. So there might be uh, gyms and childcare mm. centres and clubs, you know, l- local community clubs meet there and can have meeting rooms. So your local book club might meet there and they've got a very strong presence and identity in mm. the community. Because, because I went that. to the Manly Parramatta game last time I was over. Ah. There's a lot of picking up going on, I what noticed. So Chatting up. Boys, girls stuff going on, yeah. They wander around the crowd. There's a kind of... It's a whole social thing going on. Right. Way sure. more than here. Way well, more. You so, heard it so here of, first. Of all of them, is Aussie rules, that's your number one. That's yeah, what uh, you follow. To, to make it even more complicated, when I was growing up, um, there were some states where Aussie rules was the predominant code and South Australia was one of them. Back then, your footy was state-based. So you had South Australian teams playing other South Australian teams. The strongest Aussie rules was in Victoria. Mm. So Victorian clubs would pinch all of the good South Australian players. Once a year we'd have a state of origin match and get all our good players back and try and flog the Victorians. And then that all ended up um, being sort of uplifted and creating a national competition. So now, whilst there's still the South Australian League and the Victorian Football League, there's a national competition. I moved from South Australia to Victoria before the national competition, uh, so I picked a Victorian team to support the Western Bulldogs. So now everybody says, oh, you came from South Australia and you don't support the Crows and you don't support Port, how come? Um, but it's because of that I picked the Bulldogs even before there was the AFL. And, and, and Rugby League, comp. you support Melbourne Storm. That's right. So and, and so League, which once again was you know incredibly strong, Queensland, New South Wales, went through the same journey and created a national comp, um, including having teams in what historically had been Australian rules football states like Victoria. Right, and you into cricket? I... That's a no. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want us to win. I like watching the highlights package, but to uh, sit for a couple of days to yeah, that's what yeah, my dad loves that. It's not me. He's often found sitting on the sofa watching cricket for days. <laughs> for day after yeah. day. No, you love I, it. I love the Ashes, yeah. You the love Ashes it. this year was unbelievable. Mm. Um, before we move on to the Dream Six side team to change the world, I have something to ask you just because of someone who I like to have things that sort of keep me calm. And you were saying earlier you're one of those people that likes to sort of retreat off to get your energy. How do you do that? Do you do, you do yoga? Do you meditate? Have you got... Something that you sort of lean into? Uh, I'm a big walker and I find that, um, you know, therapeutic. I live near a beach in South Australia, so, oh, you know, that... so nice. Yeah, I'm a big believer that there's something about the the sea, the sea air, um, that is uh, calming, so... Can you walk to the beach where you live? Yes. Oh, wow, I'm so jealous of that. But you're not a big believer in the man upstairs? 
No, I'm not. No, and never have been? Oh, look, we were brought up Baptist. So, you know, I spent my childhood and uh, teenage years going to Baptist church, Baptist youth group, um, remembering uh, Bible passages, catechism. You know, I was pretty good at that. I've got a good memory, or at least I used to have. Uh, so I'd win prizes for it. But um, as I emerged into adulthood, I lost it. And do you think that in, say, like, I don't even know about Britain, actually. So in Australia, you're elected prime minister as an atheist? Yes, Bob Hawke was an atheist. I wasn't the first atheist okay. to Okay, and be... a woman, not married. First not married prime minister? Uh, mm, oh, God, you're testing me now. Because <laughs> we were saying that it's interesting because in the States... Oh, yes, you're saying different. that wouldn't be possible, it's, it's, uh, yeah, would Because um, there's so uh, much more sort I, of conventional I, uh, would, would needed to have had an earlier night last night to be as agile as I'm obviously needing to be <laughs> on my Australian history. I know someone's <laughs> going to um, correct me now and say, oh, come, why can't the bloody woman immediately remember X or Y or Z? Um, uh, but the essential underlying point is the point you're mm. making. Uh, religion and politics are not as intertwined in Australia and never have been mm. as they are in the States. I mean, it just, just even the, the, you know, the language. If you went around saying, God bless Australia, everybody would be like... Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. What the? Yeah. 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 And the decision to not get married, was that a, a feminist one? Like, my mum has refused to get married to my dad because she's feminist. She doesn't refuse. I've never asked her. Yeah, but that's why she didn't want yeah, to ever yeah. get married. She was a, it was a sexist Yeah, I mean, I am of that generation. Uh, and I know um, conceptions of marriage have changed over time. But I am of that generation that came to the conclusion, have your dad walk you down an aisle dressed in a white dress to hand you over to another man oh I don't think so <laughs> good for you good yeah. for you and you don't think that's ever there's ever been a political cost for that oh I think people interested but not judgmental mm. on those mm. things mm. curious but not judgmental mm. yeah okay and just briefly on on we talked about America there what, what what's your sort of sense of Trump's influence on global politics oh uh, we'd need we'd need a uh, uh, little glass Very of scotch and heavy, another heavy heavy yeah weight little glass of scotch and a whole other uh, <laughs> I was having podcast. fun a minute ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I think uh, his um, and you know, America needs to sort out what they want to do with the American presidency: impeachment, not impeachment, vote him again, vote mm. him out. Uh, but the impact for the world. Uh, through the unpredictable, indeed, you know, in, in relation to uh, Syria and Turkey and the, the issue of this week, uh, seemingly almost kind of ill-informed, capricious behaviour. Mm. Uh, you know, these are real people, real lives, real tragedies, and that, I think, should disturb and all of us. And he doesn't give a damn. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, I forget what publication it was in, but there was a wonderful cartoon of, you know, generals in their uniforms in a situation room. So they were, you know, earnest young people, younger soldiers on computers, and they're looking up at screens that are giving them a live display of the battlefield. And one has uh, got the mobile phone in his hand and he's saying to the other one, pointing at a tweet, do you reckon that means we're at DEFCON 2 or DEFCON 3? Um <laughs> And I, I almost feel like mm. this week is making that cartoon come true. Mm. But ScoMo, Scott Morrison, had his little state visit. Oh, and yeah, to but to 
I mean, obviously Scott Morrison is a conservative, but um, whoever is the US president and whoever is the Australian prime minister, um, our relationship is a close one, has to be a close one. So it is entirely proper mm. for Scott Morrison to uh, go on a state visit to Washington. That's exactly what an Australian okay. Prime Minister should and be doing. You, you still, do you think that, that Australia will be a republic in your lifetime? You once said that you thought when the Queen went. Yeah, I think, um, you know, pe- uh, yes, I, well, one, I hope to live a long time. Uh, two, maybe... Even if I do live a long time, the Queen will outlive me. She's giving, <laughs> she's giving life. Yeah. She might outlive us all. Yeah, she's giving every <laughs> sense that she could well do that. Um, and there's, it's not. None of this has ever been about um, lack of affection or respect for the royal family. It's been about our own national identity. Uh, I do think um, when the Queen leaves us, um, that will probably cause a moment of national reflection here. Uh, and in Australia about what next. And you think that might be the moment? I, th- I think that that might be the moment. How does that happen? Is it a referendum? No, yeah, it's hard. It's really right. hard. Um, it's uh, a referendum uh, to change the constitution. And in Australia, in a referendum, you have to get a majority of votes in a majority of states. So you God, can I wish win, we had that here. You can <laughs> win the popular vote and still lose because mm. some of the more lightly populated states vote against. Mm. Yeah, I wish we'd have had... I wish we had the majority... Every street had to vote leave. 80%. <laughs> Let's do your Dream 6 aside team to change the world. You Julia. can have a little bit of time We if haven't you given you much time. No, so. you haven't. Uh, I'll start with three men and come to three women. Okay. okay. Uh, so... Well, it's a bit sexy. I started going for the women first. Oh, Being a proper I'm 10 not... out of 10 feminist. Yeah, I'm saving the best for last. <laughs> um, uh, cert- certainly Nelson Mandela. I am of the um, generation that... Uh, campaigned uh, under the banner free Nelson Mandela and, uh, you know, his ability to show uh, grace as he fought such a profound wrong. So that would be number one. Uh, Number two, I would say George Orwell because Mm. he uh, had that remarkable knack of revealing deeper truths to us in his writing. Many of them very relevant today. Many of them. Trump, Johnson et al., Many of them very relevant today. Uh, I would say Bob Hawke, Australian Prime Minister, uh, recently departed. Uh, We lost Bob, but he was a fantastic uh, consensus leader, and I think the world needs more of that. Three dead men. (laughs) Any of you alive in your team, Julia? (laughs) Let's go to the women. Okay, let's go to the women. Jacinda Ardern. Very much alive. Very much alive. And I do feel like maybe she's um, of a generation that's showing us a different way to do politics, Mm. which um, might make me feel like I'm the... The outmoded, uh, you know, outdated, outmoded vintage, but um, that's got to happen as yeah. human history marches forward. Um, so Jacinda Ardern, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth the okay. First, because just wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to meet her? <laughs> wouldn't you want to yeah. meet her? And on the women's side, I would say uh, Virginia Woolf, because once again, her writings unveil for us deeper truths. And they inspired the title of your podcast. And, they, and she inspired the title <laughs> of my podcast, so it sort of circles back to yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was amazing. 
There you go, Grace, our first Prime Minister on the podcast. I know, because it's cool, you know, it's called for our first Prime Minister to be a woman as well, because I, you know... And such a feminist. Such a feminist. Ten out of ten. So smart and so calm. You know, I was really interested in finding out, because I, I did a debate this week, right, and it was a debate on free speech and comedy, and I there was a guy on the debate who was really, 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 really annoying. Like, if you were there, you would have gotten really angry. He was shouting at me, going, <laughs> your generation's comedy is bland, it's boring, it's bland. He kept telling me that... Who was he? I don't... I've never heard of him. He was angry. I mean, he was sort of... Mm. On the edge. Intense. Yeah. And he was shouting me and shouting me and shouting me. And I eventually just lost my nerve because I, there was only so much sort of calm, like, diplomacy I could handle for that moment where I felt I was being quite personally attacked and I ended up losing my nerve. And then I did felt, feel that I sort of lost power mm. in this debate because I'd lost my temper. Right. And then for the rest of it, I just sort of stayed calm. So I was really interested to talk to Julia about Best how speech. she stays so calm. But she actually just seems no, like I think a very that's calm person. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. think it was something she had to work on. Whereas I've inherited your temper mm. and your temperament. I know, but also I think that uh, the other thing is because I, mean, I do know quite a lot about Australian politics. I think it's, I think there is something very special about the fact that she got so so far because she's not what you'd expect in terms of what an Australian top politician would be. She's very very steely. Um, but she's also much. What I like about her is it's not. She, it's, you don't feel like she's made herself to be more like a man to get where she's gotten to. No. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like Thatcher and uh, some other, you could argue Angela Merkel to an extent. No, I don't think so. You don't think Angela Merkel's done that? No. Really? No, not at all. I mean, listen, she's quite kind of hard exterior. Mm, yeah. No, but I think I think the thing about Julia is that she's. Um, that that what was what I was reading is about stuff when she talked about what she was like as a child that you would not have detected from that that's a person who's going to be the prime minister. I so thought she was going to turn around and be like, age six, I knew I wanted no. to be a politician. I so thought she was going to be that person because of all of the research I'd done. It really felt like she sort of always mm. had that in her. I tell you the bit I really found interesting was when she talked about um, the the big speech, the misogyny speech that kind of went global. But what I thought was extraordinary about that was one. The fact that, yes, she was so calm, both talking about it and when she delivered it, also that she was so conscious of the impact it was having in the chamber, but she had no sense that it was going to become one of those kind of defining moments. Um, I always think that's really interesting. You, I, 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 you know, if I look back at some of the speeches I was involved in with Tony, you never really, really knew which ones were going to kind of really connect and cut through. Um, and, and I think that... But when you were, just to go to you, when you were writing speeches, did you always have a sort of tiny little hope that it would turn into a speech that people would talk about for years to come? Uh, yeah, but it's like, um, yeah. That's just the hope of writing speeches, surely? That, that, that... I think you're probably more interested in, in how they're going to be seen kind of in relatively short term. But I can remember, it's like Tony's big foreign policy speech in Chicago. I remember he really, really wanted that to be kind of seen as almost like a kind of a template. Um, but it's funny, you know, we, one of the questions, you know, you've talks I do and stuff and people say, you know, who, who coined the phrase the people's princess? And the honest truth is I can't remember. Because Just you say don't... it was you, Dad. No, I don't say I it tell it people it I know, you might do, but, it's, but the thing is that nobody knew. You don't know that that's going to kind of disconnect like Yeah. Well, and I you, think that's what you wrote a diary. Surely you do know. No, I don't, because the only line in there says we agreed it was okay, okay to call the people's wow. princess. Yeah, but I don't. Well, remember, I don't remember discussing as about coined it. in the film The Queen. The Queen. It was Alistair Campbell. 
who came up with the People's Princess. Is that what it says? It says it. it, it you, that guy who plays you, yeah. he is the one that comes oh, up right, with it. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, so let's just carry on that. OK. Anyway, I think, um, and uh, the, linking to the royal family, Julia represented Australia at the wedding of uh, William and... I saw that. Yeah, we didn't yeah. get into that, did we? Didn't no, we? there was but too, still too much to talk about. She's still a Republican. Yeah, there was a lot to talk There's about. There's a lot to talk about. We didn't cover everything, but I feel very happy that I got mm. to sit down with her and Yeah. And she did a nice cool. she did a nice little trailer for the for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right, Dad, I've got to go to the opticians now. Bye bye. Love you. Please subscribe, rate, review, share, like, talk, like, talk share. About. Be friends, follow my dad in any way you can. He loves attention. He's a bit sad and lonely. He loves attention. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.